All right, well, welcome back to Grow. We are currently doing our homemade systematic theology class, uh, which is our elder affirmation of faith. We're on article six, part two. So this is the historical theology week. So it's the week you gotta really work hard not to fall asleep. We'll look at five or six uh, major heretical views of the incarnation and how the church, faithful, has responded to those heresies. So that's our uh, diet for today. Let me open us in prayer and we'll just jump right in. Father, thank you for, again, the Lord's day where we get to come and gather together as your people to honor you. Uh, we, we, we're not here for information dissemination. We are here for worship and to honor you, to worship you. And so we pray, Lord, that's precisely what would happen. Through the truth of your word, I pray that over our children's and teenage classes that are happening even now, that deep in the hearts of the the souls under, under your word, that you would be honored, that Christ would be cherished, and that obedience would flow. So today, meet us, help us, teach us, use this session to help us uh, be riveted to the precision of your word concerning the incarnation of your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I suspect there'll be some questions today, so I'm gonna do my best to save some time for that. So, um, let me set my, I usually set this thing to, set it to a time you don't know like that. There we go. All right, well, uh, this is, as I mentioned, our Core Doctrine series based on the Elder Affirmation of Faith. Uh, this is week two, so that's the historical theology. Last week we looked at a really rapid fire, uh, 50-something slide summary biblical theology of the incarnation. That's God come in the flesh, Christ the God-man. So today we'll be on week two. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday, Matholomew Nash will lead uh, week three on practical theology, the incarnation. So this is Article 6, Part 2. Let's see if this doodad works. Hey, there we go. All right, Article 6, Part 2, and here's what the, the affirmation reads. Um, I've noticed the last few Sundays we've had that light off. Do y'all, are you guys able to see it? I'm fine to leave it on if, if you can read it, but I'm thinking for the service to follow. Um, I don't know what switch it is. It may kill them all. Just play with it. If it goes dark, we'll keep going. <laughs> all right, let me read the affirmation. We believe that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his eternal son as Jesus the Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We believe that when the eternal Son became flesh. He took on a fully human nature so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without confusion or mixture. 
Thus the person, Jesus Christ, was and is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ and the only mediator between God and man, point two. We believe that Jesus Christ lived without sin, though he endured the common infirmities and temptations of human life. He preached and taught with truth and authority unparalleled in human history. He worked miracles demonstrating his divine right and power over all creation, dispatching demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, stilling the storm, walking on water, multiplying loaves, and foreknowing what would befall him and his disciples, including the betrayal of Judas and the denial, restoration, and eventual martyrdom of Peter. Point three, we believe that his life was governed by his father's providence with a view to fulfilling all Old Testament prophecies concerning the one who was to come, such as the seed of the woman, the prophet like Moses, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, the son of David and the suffering servant. And finally, point four, we believe that Jesus Christ suffered voluntarily in fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he died, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead to vindicate the saving work of his life and death and to take his place as the invincible, everlasting Lord of glory. During 40 days after his resurrection, he gave many compelling evidences of his bodily resurrection and then ascended bodily into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people on the basis of his all-sufficient sacrifice for sin and reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Well, that is our elder affirmation on the incarnation of Christ. We'll, we read the affirmation every week. So we read that same thing last week, read it today, read it again next week. Um, but as I mentioned, we're focused on historical theology of the incarnation. And there is so much precision, even if that seems long, it's actually kind of pretty short, comparatively speaking, to a lot of the statements historically on the incarnation. But in that brief statement, point one, two, three, and four, there is a refutation, a refuting of a number of historic heresies concerning the incarnation. I want to draw out several of the most predominant, but before I do, just a word of caution. I should probably put this slide in every week. It's never been in. It, it, it probably should have been every week. Warning, theology is not scripture. So we need humility in our theology. And this is a quote from John Selhammer in his introduction to Old Testament theology. He says, no statement of the Bible's theological message can claim to speak with the same authority as the Bible itself. Only the Bible is infallible, not our theological systems. Make sense? So some would say, I have no creed but the Bible. Historically, people who say, I don't need a creed, I don't need a theological statement, I don't need a theological system. Historically, most of those people have gone into heresy because we all read the same Bible. But as we gather the truth of Scripture categorically and thematically, we're helped to refine and be protected from certain error and in many cases heresy. So we do need humility. Nothing in our affirmation is inspired unless there's a direct quotation of scripture in it. But what I read to you is not inspired. It's just 
an effort to say precisely what we believe to be true, it certainly could be said differently and maybe even more faithfully. But let's unpack it. There are five historic heretical Christologies. So note, heretical, uh, we, we are saying we do not believe this and our affirmation actually spoke against each of these five in some way or another. Here they are. Apollinarianism, this is where you don't go to sleep. Arianism, Docetism, Eutychianism, and Nestorianism. We'll take them one at a time briefly. Apollinarianism, what is that? Well, Apollinarianism, quote from Grudem Systemat says, Apollinarius, who became bishop in Laodicea about AD 361, taught that the one person of Christ had a human body, but not a human mind or spirit, and that the mind and spirit of Christ were from the divine nature of the Son of God. So this simple graphic summarizes, grossly simplifies, simplifies Apollinarius's view of the incarnation. That Jesus had a human body, but a divine nature only, not a human nature. Okay? That's outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Say that another way. You cannot hold that view and be redeemed. You have to have someone who is, we, we use a phrase, I want to help us be more precise, and I, I learned this myself uh, not too many years ago from R.C. Sproul. We use phrases like truly God, I mean uh, fully God and fully man. That's great. We know what we mean. Sproul underlined why we should say truly, truly, not just fully, fully. Truly God, truly man. Apollinarius denied that. Make sense? Let's go to the next one. Arianism. You may have heard of this one. This is probably the most popular of the heretical views of the incarnation. Arianism uh, found, uh, derived from the, the bishop of Alexandria, Arius, who died in 336, taught that God the Son did not pre-exist nor did the Holy Spirit, but the Father only. The Son, a heavenly being, existed before the rest of creation, but the Son, uh, I don't know why I put and, cannot be said to be of the same nature as the Father. So he's, in Arius' view, Jesus is derivative. Yes, before creation, not from eternity. And so again, a graphic which oversimplifies but tries to capture the Arian view of the incarnation, you can see in that one circle, remember Apolli Apollinarius had kind of a divided circle. Arius would have one, only begotten and firstborn are taken to mean not divine. How can you be born first, which he misunderstood, and, not, and be from forever? There was a time when he was not is what Arius would say. So I'll leave that slide up there and just read to you some of my, some of my notes. 
Uh, Grudem says, the Arians depended heavily on texts that called Christ God's only begotten son. If Christ were begotten by the Father, they reasoned, it must mean that he was brought into existence by God the Father, similar with firstborn language in Colossians 1.15. And if true of the Son, it must necessarily be true of the Holy Spirit as well. Arians would, would say that about the Spirit. So what would be a modern derivation of religion that holds to this view? You may already be a step ahead. Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah, they hold to this view of the incarnation. A similar heresy, subordinationism. I don't have a slide for that topic. It's so related to Arianism. Teaches that the Son is eternal, not created, but inferior, subordinate in being to the Father. And for those who uh, have found themselves interested in this raging debate over the last three or four years on the interweb, there has been a massive interchange among Trinitarian scholars on the eternal relationships of the Trinity. And some have tiptoed really closely to subordinationism, though they expressly deny that heresy. Another similar heresy, not only subordinationism, the Son is eternal but subordinate to the Father, that's outside the bounds of Christianity, would be adoptionism that teaches that Jesus lived as an ordinary man until his baptism, at which point the Father adopted him as the Messiah, and he, he from that point on took on supernatural powers. Well, all those are kind of related to Arianism. All right, so third, docetism. Docetism is the heretical teaching, where are we at? There we go. The heretical teaching that Jesus was not really a man, but only seemed to be one, the Greek word dokeo, to seem, to appear to be. So again, in a simplified graphic, you can see the one person of Jesus only appeared or seemed to be a man, but was docetic. He was only an apparition of a man, not truly man. All right, fast forward. Eutychian. Eutychianism. This is also called monophysitism, mono one. The primary advocate of this view uh, in the early church was Eutyches, 370s to 450s, who was the leader of the monastery in Constantinople. This view held that Christ has only one nature, monos, one, and physis, nature monophysis, one nature. So you can see in this graphic, human nature and divine nature combined together into one new nature. So this also is outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy because we would say Jesus is one person, two natures. The monophysitists would say one person, one nature. So they conflate, contra the Athanasian Creed, the natures of Christ into one. He's both divine and human, truly 
All right. Uh, this is the opposite error, error of the next one we're going to see. So let me just say something about it now so that when that slide comes up, you kind of have the, the connections that this is the opposite area, error of Nestorianism. Nestorius denied the human and divine natures in that he, he denied that they remained fully or truly human and fully or truly divine. Eutyches held that Jesus was something of a third substance. So Nestorius would say, less than God in his deity, more than man in his humanity. That's wrong. That, that's outside the bounds of biblical Christology. Eutyches would say, no, it's not this or this. It's a new, it's a new something, a new substance. One nature, not two. So let's go to that final one, Nestorianism. Nestorianism, uh, poor, poor fella gets a bad rap because Nestorius was a popular preacher in Antioch, AD 428. He was Bishop of Constantinople. He proposed the doctrine that there were two separate persons in Christ, a human person and a divine person, a teaching that is distinct from the biblical view that sees Jesus as one person. So you can see in that graphic, it's almost duplicitous. He's two people, not one. And so he had such a hard division between personhood instead of natures that he had delineations uh, in his Christology. Here's why I say he got a bad rap. This is a quote from uh, somewhere. Uh, I'll find where I cited it in a minute. Oh, uh, 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 O.J. Brown's Heresies, page 176. Although Nestorius himself probably never taught the heretical view that goes by his name, the idea that Christ was two persons in one body rather than one person, through a combination of several personal conflicts and good deal of ecclesiastical politics, he was removed from his office of bishop and his teachings were condemned. Going on, Nestorius's incarnate person was a single person, not two as his critics thought, but he could not convince others that it was so. Consequently, he has gone down in history as a great heretic, although what he actually believed was reaffirmed at Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian Creed, which we'll look at in a moment. So I just wonder how his opponents felt when they saw him in heaven. Oh, you didn't believe the stuff that we said that you, that you believe. So Nestorianism is actually a misnomer because he didn't in his writings, according to uh, O.J. Brown, hold to the view that goes by his name. Uh, so cancel culture was alive and well in the fourth century. They canceled Nestorius. He lost his job, but uh, he actually didn't even believe the things that they said he believed. All right, so those are some heresies. I want to go quickly through a few of the faithful responses. A historic Orthodox Christology. This is the good stuff. Three things. Remaining he became. He possesses attributes that are both communicable from the divine to the human nature and incommunicable, not able to be transferred or applied to the human nature and the incarnation as the miracle of all miracles. Let's just go through each of these 
briefly. Remaining he became. Remaining what he was not, uh, pardon me, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That's a summary view of the incarnation. He didn't defer any of his deity. He took on humanity. In Colossians 2, the fullness of deity in bodily form. So Grudem says, in other words, while Jesus continued remaining what he was, that is truly divine, he also became what he previously had not been, that is truly human as well. Jesus did not give up his deity when he became man, but he did take on humanity that was not his before. So remaining he became. I mentioned Chalcedon. So the Chalcedonian council convened in 451 AD met in order to respond to these Christological heresies. So a large council was convened on the city of, in the city of Chalcedon near Constantinople, modern Istanbul, Turkey, from October 8th to November 1st, 451. What's today? October 10th. 1,570 years ago today, this council was meeting to respond to these heretical Christologies. Here we are 1,570 years later, and I'm about to read what they said and say, I totally believe what they said. They got it right. The resulting statement of their, of their council called the Chalcedonian definition guarded against Apollinarianism and Eutychianism especially. It has been taken as the standard orthodox definition of the biblical teaching on the person of Christ since that day by the Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox branches of Christianity alike. We all hold to this same Christology. We have some differences on soteriology. There are three localized groups of ancient churches that rejected Chalcedon's definition, and they still endorse monophysitism to this day. Who are those three groups? The Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt, and the Syrian Jacobite Church uh, still hold to those heretical views. What is the Chalcedon Chalcedonian definition? I'm glad you asked. Here's part of it. I'm going to read two parts of it, maybe three. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, Teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, that's where Sproul gets that, of a reasonable, that is rational, soul and body, consubstantial, that is co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial, co-essential, with us according to the manhood. So this goes against Apollinarius, that Christ did not have a human mind or soul. We have a statement that he's truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to manhood in all things like unto us, having the same nature, the same substance. All right, let me go to one other, two other statements of this definition. In all things, Jesus, like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, 
And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeable, indivisibly, inseparably. So in opposition to Nestorianism, that Christ was two persons united in one body, we have the words here in this definition, indivisibly, inseparably, concurring in one person, one substance, not parted, not divided into two persons. So that's their response to Nestorianism. And then the definition goes on. The distinction of natures being by no means uh, taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. That's so important. And occurring in one person. That's important. And in one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same son and only begotten God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. So against the view of monophysitism, that Christ only had one nature and that his human nature was lost in the union with the divine nature, we have these words in this definition, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly unchangeable, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. So you see how they're responding specifically to particular heresies. Grudem said the human and the divine natures were not confused or changed when Christ became man, but the human nature remained and truly uh, remained a truly human nature and the divine nature remained a truly divine nature. All right, I think there's one more on the definition. Uh, the definition is longer, but I put four slides for you to show how they're responding to particular heresies. Here's how it ends. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. So they're saying this is a biblical Christology, so help us God. Well, I mentioned there's another beautiful relationship of Jesus's natures in his one person, and it's these big words, communicable and incommunicable, things that can be communicated, things that cannot be communicated. So communicable and incommunicable. Once we have decided that, let's see, it's gonna work, there we go. Uh, that Jesus was fully man and fully God and that his human nature remained fully human and his divine nature remained fully divine, we can still ask whether there were some qualities or abilities that were given or communicated from one nature to the other. It seems that there were. So before I start saying, I think this or that one or this, this attribute seems to have been communicated, try to think about it. Uh, one systematic theology I looked at said from the divine nature to the human nature, although Jesus' human nature did not change its essential character because it was united with the divine nature in the one person of Christ, Jesus' human nature gained some things. What did Jesus' human nature gain from being in the one person that also has a divine nature? Here's some examples. Worthiness to be worshiped. No other human is worthy to be worshiped inability to sin. It's a doctrine of impeccability. Though truly tempted, 
divinely enable to sin, both of which did not belong to human beings otherwise. Well, what about from the human nature to the divine nature? Any communication of quality or attribute? This is a deep doctrine. How about this? An ability to experience suffering. God could not experience that outside of being united to humanity and then eventually death. An ability to understand by experience what we are experiencing. Or third, an ability to be our substitute sacrifice, which Jesus as God alone could not have done. You guys tracking with that? He had to be man. Uh, So we looked last week at the truth that there's one mediator between God and man, the God Jesus Christ, not what it says, the man Jesus Christ. We had to have a man to stand in place of humanity. So the human nature did not take on some other attributes like omnipresence. Jesus' body was in one place at one time. And I don't know how to explain this, but Jesus did not relinquish his omnipresence as God. His divine nature retained all the qualities of deity, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. But his human nature was limited. I think, yeah, this is our last slide on communicable and incommunicable. Here's an erroneous view of the two natures and the relationship. It's called the kenosis theory. It comes from the Greek word kenosis in Philippians 2. He emptied himself. Kenosis. The kenosis theory holds that Christ gave up some of his divine attributes while he was on earth as a man. According to the theory, Christ emptied himself of some of his divine attributes, such as omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, while he was here on earth as a man. That's not true. He can't relinquish any of his deity and remain God. That's impossible. God is not complex, meaning compartmentalized. He doesn't have like some holiness and some mercy and some wrath, and he chooses like pigeonholes which bucket to pull from. He's simple. He's totally one. He's completely unified. He has no compartments. And so Jesus didn't relinquish any of his deity. The best understanding of Philippians 2, 5 to 7, in my, in my view, is that it talks about Jesus giving up status, privilege. In that way, he emptied himself. It doesn't say he emptied himself of anything in Philippians 2. It says he emptied himself. He poured himself into humanity. The canonic view must be rejected because of the larger context of the teaching of the New Testament. One system at theology said... Uh, the doctrinal teaching of the entire Bible goes against Jesus relinquishing any of his deity. If it were true that such a momentous event as this has happened, that the eternal Son of God ceased for a time to have all the attributes of God, then we would expect that such an incredible event would be taught clearly and repeatedly in the New Testament, not found in a very doubtful interpretation of one passage in one epistle. That was S.M. Smith's canonic theology. Finally, miracle of miracles. I have, uh, I have three slides for you. Let me just read them. Grudem said the incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle 
of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the doctrine of the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Mind-boggling. Grudem goes on to say, the New Testament in hundreds of explicit verses that call Jesus God and Lord and use a number of other titles of deity to refer to him and in many passages that attribute actions or words to him that could only be true of God himself affirms again and again the full absolute deity of Jesus Christ. His name is rightly called Emmanuel, that is God with us. Matthew 1.23 and then finally, fairest Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God, and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. That's the right response to the incarnation. The core reasons that the human nature was necessary is that he be a representative, obeyer, his obedience representing us. Two, to be a substitute sacrifice for us. Three, to be the one mediator between God and men. Four, to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. Jesus fulfilled that command. And five, to be our example and pattern in our living. Six, to be the pattern of our redeemed bodies in his glorified state. And seventh and finally, to sympathize with us as our high priest until we see him face to face. There's our lightning round. Heresies on the incarnation and a faithful view. I said there'll probably be questions. We don't really have time. Let's take one minute. Anybody have a pressing, burning question or observation? T.E. Oh, we even got a mic runner. All right. So, on the slide, you mentioned the kenosis was erroneous, mm -hmm. um, but it seems as if even in your explanation, that that could be heresy. Can you talk about the difference between just heresy and erroneous and how this fits into the category of erroneous instead of heresy? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this, the kenotic theory would become heretical, not just erroneous if taken to its logical end, that Jesus relinquished any aspect of his deity. Um, so we talked earlier about the difference between error and heresy. Error, congratulations, you all have it, so do I. We all have error in our theology. We don't want to, but the only way to get rid of it is to continue to avail ourselves to the truth and realize where we're wrong. Heresy is outside the bounds of Christianity. The canonic view could be erroneous, because we just don't know what we don't know. But let's say you continue to grow, to, to become regenerate, you don't have to know all of that. But let's say you are growing in your faith and you come to a place where you say, I'm convinced he relinquished some of his divinity in order to take on humanity. That would be heretical, right? If you don't know that you don't know, that's okay, welcome to the club, we're all, Barely beginning, <laughs> but good question and distinction between error and heresy. 
Lord, thank you for these precious people and for your glorious Son, our Savior, our Redeemer. Help us to hold to your word, phrase by phrase, syllable by syllable in many cases, where we find your precise revelation to us of your Son. And he is, as we'll see in our sermon text, the precise revelation of you, the perfect representative, the perfect missionary who shows us God quintessentially, perfectly. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord, our Redeemer, our brother, in whose name we pray. Amen.